Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to bring you this episode with my friend, Laura Zygman. I really just still can't believe that I got to sit down and have this conversation with her. She has been such a literary hero in my life. Um, one of those authors whose books you turn to at a period of time in your life that sort of fuses everything together and makes it all more meaningful. Her new book, Small World is one of my favorites of the year. It's so good. Go and get it. Remember that if you want a copy of it, you can ask me for one. So I want to tell you a little bit about Laura. She is the author of five novels, including Separation and Anxiety, which was optioned by the actress Julianne Nicholson and the production company Whip, which did Mayor of Easttown, one of my favorite TV shows, for a limited television series. Animal Husbandry, the book I talked to her about here, was made into a movie called Someone Like You with Hugh Jackman and Ashley Judd. She also wrote Dating Big Bird, her piece of work. She's ghostwritten, collaborated on several works of nonfiction, including Eddie Izzard's New York Times bestseller, Believe Me. She's been a contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Huffington Post, produced a popular online series of animated videos called Annoying Conversations. She was the recipient of a Yaddo residency, her sixth novel, the one we talk about here, Small World, was published in 2023. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You're going to love this episode. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Dervis, and I have the distinct, unbelievable honor to be sitting down today with author Laura Zygman. Laura, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I was just gushing a second ago because it, it's like 25 years ago that Laura first came into my life with her book, Animal Husbandry, and it was so meaningful to me. So I just said thank you to her for that and also said, I can't believe that we're getting to talk, that if you had told me way back then that I would have gotten to talk to you. I would have probably cried even more because it was a crying period of my life. And that book really just kept me such, such good company. Oh, I'm so glad. I know it was 25 years ago. Exactly. That it yeah. Was I don't know that we needed to say that number, but I yeah, know. it was 25 I years so ago. I know, but yeah. we're still so young. Yeah. Babies, babies. <laughs> you have written an extraordinary book that is getting a lot of really, really well-deserved accolades. Every newspaper out there is saying wonderful things about it. And I have been following the people that I love on the interwebs who are reading books. Everyone is responding to small world just across the board, loving the story and really being touched by it. I can't wait to dive in and ask you a million questions. Do you want to give just a very quick summary of the story so that sure. those folks, the three folks of my listeners who have not yet read it because <laughs> they heard me talking about it so much, just give us a quick summary of the yeah. story so that. Sure. Thank you for that introduction. Small World is about two middle-aged, recently divorced sisters who move in together as adults. One sister, Lydia, left the East Coast right after college, moved out to LA and lived there ever since. And her younger sister, Joyce, remained on the East Coast and lives in, lived in Cambridge. And when Lydia, who has a slight social disorder in the sense that she just kind of isn't the most tactful person, when she calls and says, you know, she, the, her divorce is final and she thinks she's gonna move East after, you know, however many years, decades, Joyce says, 
in a typical younger sister fashion, always desperate for the older sister's attention. Well, if you don't have any, you know, if you don't know your plans, why don't you move in with me for a while until you get, get settled? And of course the book opens and it's basically been 10 months and no way was she supposed to stay that long. So in the one surface, it's, it's a humorous um, look at what, what happens when adult sisters, you know, you think you don't really know each other. And after that initial layer, like a perfume burns off of the fun of the sister, you know, then it's like you reg both regress and you're basically slapping each other in fighting the way you did when you were kids. And so the annoying neighbors move in upstairs and then and their relationship plays out through them. But really what happens is it's the first time they've lived together since they were young and they now have the opportunity to face their childhood. And they had another sister, a middle sister who died at 10 and she had disabilities. She had cerebral palsy and a severe seizure disorder. And she was the focus of their mother's attention. The book takes place, that part of the book takes place really in the early seventies. And, and Eleanor, their middle sister lived at home for nine of her 10 years. And her mother Louise was kind of a homemade activist and was just obsessed with, in the best possible way, inclusion. And they would, you know, everything was focused on Eleanor and revolved around Eleanor. And the irony being that Joyce and Lydia always felt excluded from the inclusion and overlooked. And I'm sure you know, as a therapist, there's a term for that. Now what they experienced, which is well child syndrome, which they always grew up feeling like they were ignored and they, they couldn't ask for anything because their problems weren't big enough. So they really get into their childhood and that's pretty much the story. There's so many beautiful pieces like the, the book is called Small World and we'll, we can get into why the title because it's so brilliant. There's so many small little details and pieces that are beautifully tessellated together. The relationship that you see both in sort of you write the history of it from the childhood point of view, but then also how it carries over into the experience with the older siblings, yeah. which is just, it's so complex. When I reached out to do this podcast, I said, God, it's so layered. And part of what I know is that while this is fiction, it also brings, I think, pulls in from your own experience sure. in life. Can you yeah. say a little bit about that too? Sure. Um, you know, it is based on, you know, I always wanted to write about my childhood, which I had an older sister. I have a sister who lives in LA, who's two years older than me. And when we were very little, our old, oldest sister was seven and she died. She had a, she was born in 1958 with a very rare bone disease and her bones didn't produce bone marrow. So about two years after she was born, she was institutionalized in a place right outside Boston called the Fernalds School. And it was originally called the Fernald School for Retarded Children. That was the, yeah. the words they used back then. So she lived there uh, from the time she was about two and a half and she died when she was seven. So unlike other situations, you know, we didn't really know her. She wasn't part of our family at home. And so it really was something that happened very much offstage. It happened really to my parents. And so I was three, my sister Linda was five. And so what we remember most about our childhood, besides the occasional set of movies my father took of us visiting, and those are our, we don't have real memories. We have memories yeah. of watching those films. Our childhood really was defined by sort of growing up in a sad family. I mean, my parents handled it very differently. My mother never talked about it. My father talked about it all the time, 
all the time to his dying day. He had a brain tumor, brain cancer. He died 10 years ago next month. And he went, went to his grave talking about Cheryl. And he talked, talked about it. It was never a conversation. And so it never really included us. It never, they, and I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying, this is how it was. My mother always felt that it was a burden she didn't want to put on us. So she was very private about her thoughts and feelings about it. And my father was the exact opposite. I would be with him. I would take him somewhere. I'd get up to get him a glass of water. And he'd be, I could see across the room, his mouth moving and saying the disease she had. And I would just die every time because he would tell complete strangers that he had a daughter who, I mean, just went on for constantly. And I wrote a piece for Modern Love about three years ago about what it was like and how he always, when he was asked how many children he had, again, till his dying month, you know, a nurse would come into the nursing home and say, Mr. Zygmunt, how many, you know, how are you and how many children do you have? And he would say, well, he would hesitate. And that was the thing. How do you answer? Do you, and he'd say, sometimes he would just say, I have two daughters. And other times he'd say, well, I had three. You know, I had two, but I had three. And I understand it completely. But when you grow up in a family where that is, where grief is just front and center and it's not yours, it's theirs. So you're kind of a witness to it, but you're not included in it. We never, you know, her, Cheryl's birthday would come along and my parents would go and go visit the grave and all that. But we were, it was never a family thing. And I'm sure if they had made it a family thing, I'd be in therapy saying, sure. why were we going? You know, they, you could never do anything right. So you just like whatever I'm sure they did felt wrong in a certain way. And yet I completely understand it. So, but you grow up in a family where grief is front and center, and then you feel very different from other people. You don't know it until you know it. And I remember really the exact moment when I realized I didn't grow up like everyone else. I was in, I'd been in publishing in New York for about a couple of years. And I had met this wonderful person, Julie Grau, who's a big editor now at Spiegel and Grau. She runs a company. And we were at some conference in Newport Beach and we were having, we were at a nice hotel and we were talking and she's Jewish and I'm Jewish. We're like the same age. We had sort of very similar families and she started to talk about her family and I will never forget it. It was like a thunderbolt. Yeah. I was on like these fern, it was like a fern bar in Newport Beach and we were having our Chardonnay and I was like, oh my God, like she grew up completely, I grew up in a sad family. I'll never forget that thought just came into my head. And until then, I mean, I was probably 25 at the time and I had no clue, but you grow up the way you grow up and that's how we grew up. And so I'd always wanted to write about that and feeling unentitled to complaining about it. Because again, when you grow up in a family that is either has a sick child, a disabled child, uh, or sorry, a child with disabilities or you know, anything or a child who dies, you don't feel entitled to saying anything because you know your parents are struggling and suffering. So like, how could you possibly? So that complicates it. And I thought for a while I might write it as a memoir and I tried and I realized I just didn't have enough of a narrative because so much of it really happened off stage. We didn't know her. And then this was the perfect way I, I sort of had no clue that I was going to write about that part. I just knew like, ooh, a situation like sisters and ooh, annoying neighbors, you know? And then suddenly I was like, oh no, wait a minute. You know, the, this is the book I've wanted to write for a long time. So it was I've been great. using your book. Well, thank you for that answer. I've been using your book as an example. I, I teach this class right now called Writing Through Trauma, which is 
The first six weeks are about the process. So we're not here to publish anything. We're just really here to like get a handle around the narrative of what, what is the trauma and, yeah. and what is your understanding of the trauma? And then the second six weeks are sort of like, and then how do you make that make sense to other people and, and universal, you know, the more specific you are, the more, but I've been using your book as an example, because I heard you talk about this at politics and prose here in DC. And I heard you say that you got permission from your sister and then to write about this sister relationship. And then you could be like even more exaggerated about things because you had, and I've used that as an example to folks that, you know, people who are worried about publishing a memoir because it's going to hurt someone or that the details of their story, you know, are not something that other folks are ready to have shared, that there's a way of exploring the emotional content, right? Which is true. And put it in more exaggerated circumstances, change circumstances, change the gender, whatever it is that you need to do. But will you tell us a little bit about what it was like writing about sisters and having a sister? Because that was, someone asked that question, but I was like, oh my God, what, you know, how did this go down for you in your current sister relationship? It's uh, it's a really good question. And I, I, my heart goes out to people who are really writing memoirs about family who are still living because that is a very, very hard thing. Well, it was complicated mainly because both my parents got sick. My mother got pancreatic cancer in 2010 and died a few months later. And then about two years later, my father got brain cancer. It was like ridiculous. And my sister, of course, was, you know, not here. So I was like the boots on the ground daughter. And the first illness for my mother, my sister came in once a month, we got along, we were very much like, even though she wasn't here, it was very, we were very connected. And then when my mother died and she came, you know, we both had our own whatever regressions and she was done. She just went back to LA and I knew exactly, like she kind of like, we got into a fight and I knew it was all kind of happening because she just didn't, yeah. Didn't want to deal. Cause now we had to deal with my father who was suddenly alone and he had his own medical, you know, he was like, you know, so we completely blew apart. And then mm-hmm. a little while after that, you know, he was fine for a couple of years and then he got brain cancer and we barely spoke those years. It was very ugly. You know, our kids love each other. I love her kids. She loves my son. They're very close, the kids. And it was hard, you know, she would come and visit and uh, to see my father and stuff like that. And it was very uncomfortable. It was just yeah. awful. And he died and it was still awful. And, you know, then I was selling the place and blah, all doing all that stuff. And at a certain point, I just realized like I needed to make this relationship work really for my son's sake. And, and we never got into it and we never, there was no like sitting down and all that. But at some point I just stopped reacting to certain things that she would say or do that I perceive she said or did or whatever. So yeah. I just didn't react. And that was like a magic trick. We just have never argued since. And she doesn't even say things that make me sort of trigger me or whatever. I just realized like, oh, just don't react. Magic. I wish I'd known that my whole life. Anyway, <laughs> a few years went by. We had really had a reestablished a very nice sort of fragile piece. Like we just never went there. We never talked about that time. We didn't feel we had to or whatever. And suddenly I decided I want to write this book. And I was, I knew that it was going to focus on childhood, but I knew if she asked me in passing on the phone, what are you working on? And I'd say, oh, I have a book about sisters. 
I knew her first thought, understandably so, would be like, oh my God, oh God. you're going to write a fucking book about us and what, you know, you know, that I'm a monster or whatever. So I wanted to be really clear with her and it was less asking her permission and more saying, I just, I for once, like, use my words, which I never used to do. I would just, you know, but I was like, be communicative, just say. So I said, listen, I just want you to know I'm writing this book. It's not going to be about that stuff because I would never want to reopen that and our kids and all that. I said, it's nothing about that. It's about childhood and it's going to be fictionalized. And I hadn't even finished. And she just said, I trust you, write your book. And that was, you know, I'm not saying if she had said something else that I would have listened, I probably still would have written the book. But the fact that I had kind of cleared the air, I wasn't nervous. I knew that I could sort of do whatever I wanted. And I had her blessing in a way. And then when I finished the book, I, I, you know, emailed her, I called her and I said, listen, I'm done. I'm going to send it to you. And I said, you know, if there's anything in it, I just, you know, let me know. I'm happy to change it. So I don't know if I told the story of politics of Rose, but I sent it to her and Oh, great. You know, and then there was like silence for like nine days, which is a very long time. It's not that long of a book. And, uh, and then I got a text from her and she said, well, I'm 90 pages in or something. And then there were no dots for the text. I was waiting for more. None. So I was like, Ugh. Uh, so then I was like, oh, you know, I hope you don't hate it. And then she said, no, I don't hate it. Oh no, she's and then there were no dots and I was dying. Anyway, a few days later, she, she finished it and she, she said it was very hard to read at the beginning. She couldn't help thinking she was Lydia and Lydia is a very annoying person. She's nothing like my sister, except that, right. you know, they, you know, all these similarities, but they're nothing personality wise. <laughs> she's nothing, you know, and then she said, I quickly realized it, that was fiction. And she said, and then it just became a really, it was hard to read in certain parts because it's so, it remind, it brought up all the stuff and yet we've had some of the best conversations we've ever had because she had a very, and I'm sure you, you know, you have multiple siblings, you know, you can grow up in the same family and you have completely different experiences. And she had a very different experience than I did. We had a grandmother who loved me and didn't really like her. And so she had like an extra layer of, Mm. and, and so she did write sorry notes. You know, she was always apologizing for like misbehaving, which was basically just her having feelings. And there was an envelope of when we sold my parents' place after my father died, you know, we found this envelope and it was just this incredibly weird and sad thing. It was stuffed with notes of her apologizing, you know, when she was little, like she would have a little meltdown and then she would write a note to apologize and explain. And no one ever said to her, oh, you don't have to apologize. You're just having your, you know, whatever. So to get back to your question, you know, I knew I was going to fictionalize. And so what the beauty of fiction is that you can take, just like you said so perfectly, you take all the emotions that are so true and you fictionalize. For instance, there's a scene in the book that takes place at an amusement park. I, you're probably too Rude. not as old as I am, but in, in, on the South shore of Massachusetts, there used to be a, an amusement park called Paragon Park. And we would die to go there. We just loved yeah. going there. And, and, and so you know, obviously my, my sister, Cheryl was dead by then, by the time we were going to Paragon Park. But in the book, I fictionalized a scene where they bring Eleanor in the wheelchair because Louise, the mother insists on bringing her on a very hot summer day to Paragon Park. And of course it's a disaster, but like that never happened. And yet, because 
I was around a lot of families. I mean, my parents stayed very involved with Fernald, even though Cheryl had died, you know, when she was seven. The Fernald families, there was a parent organization, and we stayed, they stayed involved with them for years. So I sort of grew up around a lot of disability and a lot of people who had Down syndrome, that kind of thing. So I was very, I just, that was our world in a way, yeah. part of our world. So I could really imagine it, you know, in a way. And so even though that never actually happened, I feel like it did. And there are different moments in the book that didn't really happen, but they're so true that they felt really great to write. Well, first of all, that scene is so brutal that it, to me, there are a bunch of things where I'm like, oh, I bet this is one of those, like it comes from a real place because I can feel all the emotion. Just bear with this while I say this for a second. There's there's a kind of therapy, actually there are multiple forms of therapy that have people use their imagination. So you have a traumatic experience. You did not have enough resources in that moment to get either get yourself out of it or to navigate it emotionally. And it sounds really grim when I describe it this way, but we bring people to those moments emotionally as trauma therapists. And then we offer them resources that they didn't have in that moment. But of course we don't actually offer them. We imagine them. So the question is who could have helped you in that moment? So when I was in treatment, one of the worst memories I had, which I said to you off mic a minute ago, was the sensation of knowing that my mother had died. And I had, I was in a minivan full of kids. And so I had that, like, do I, am I the daughter? Am I the mother? And I picked the moment of being the mother and taking care of the kids, which I think really contributed to why I got ill is because like I had to now function instead of fall apart. In the therapy, the therapist took me right to that moment and said, what would have helped? And it, and my mind was very able to bring in like, oh, my older brother could have come and his wife could have driven the car. And then he and I could have been together and he could have been with me when I went in to see my mom's dead body. Just a lot of things in my imagination. And it's exactly as you just described, which is none of that happened, but it feels like it did. Yeah. So yeah. really at the heart of, oh my God, I can't wait to talk to Laura is I'm really curious about what the healing properties of this book was for you. Like allowing yourself to imagine things that did not happen, but they're much more expressive, right? I'm that's just curious. That's a great about question. That. And that's such an interesting therapy and how you described it for how it would have helped you, you know, what you just, your answer to it. That's a, an, an amazing question. And there's a scene that I wrote also from imagination and it was inspired by a documentary that came out a couple of years ago called Crip Camp. And it was the Obama's first documentary that they executive produced for Netflix. So it was a camp in upstate New York in the seventies that I think for most of the year or most of the summer was like a kid's camp. But yeah. for a, few, a portion of the summer, it was this camp for people who had disabilities, yeah. teenagers and kids. And and it was very low tech, like it wasn't, you know, clinically staffed. It was like college kids, black and white would come up from college from the South or from the West. And they busloads of disabled uh, kids with disabilities would come and they would kind of lift them off the buses and very low tech, like not tr really trained and all that. And they were in this camp for a couple of weeks every summer. And the, it was such an empowering experience for those people that a group of them became really leaders of the disability movement that 
really took hold in the 70s. And Judith, I think it's Herman or Hume, I think it's J Judith Herman was part of the Obama administration. I mean, she's, uh, you know, she has disabilities and she became, but they all became these mm -hmm. incredibly empowered people from that camp. And so I was like, sort of fast. I never knew that there was such a camp. And so to answer your question, I think exactly what you just said is when I wrote the scene, you know, Lydia and Joyce go because their mom has arranged for Eleanor to go to this camp. And somehow they end up, she's just gonna leave them home, but she ends up bringing them. And they're supposed to like be at the hotel with her at the pool and Eleanor's supposed to just be at the camp by herself, you know? But somehow of course, Louise is invo so involved, she can't let go. And so they all go every day. And the camp director is a man named Alan and he's this very warm bearded guy. And he kind of realizes how excluded Joyce and Lydia are. And so the week is spent really not just having Eleanor be part of the camp, but involving them. He refers to them as the Mellishman sisters, which they've never been called a threesome before. They don't see themselves, you know, and they're not, they've never seen themselves as really involved with her. They don't, you know, Louise does all, does everything. And, not out of a bad sense, but she just takes care of everything and doesn't really, and he's sort of teaching, you know, lift her up or, you know, do this or wipe her chin this way or just hold this, you know, and he's very, and they don't know what to do. And he goes, you can make a mistake. It's fine. You know, and by the end of the week, they're, you know, they leave and they feel like they're, they're part of her world. And it's, it's a very different experience. You know, they've never felt that. And so I think to answer you, I think it just meant for me, it was like we were so excluded from, as a family, we were not united. We were very separate, very, very separate. And, and that would have been a really different thing to experience, to be sort of like the four of us are experiencing this thing, not my parents. And then even they were split because they had their own issues with each other. And, you know, and then my sister and I were close, but not really, you know, it was just this really bifurcated thing where we weren't united. And a lot of families aren't, but we weren't united in grief. We weren't together. We were very separate. It was them. And then it was us. And I think that's part of what I really wanted to write this book too, is that the sibling experience to me is just so under reported and under discussed. And it's so important how you, you know, how families work and if you lose a sibling or if you have a sibling that is a special needs, I think we have mutual friends who, you know, so much attention goes to the special needs kid. And then the other kids are, they have less attention and, and they can know that their parents are doing their best and they can love their sibling who has special needs, but like there's a differential and you grow up with anger. You grow up with kind of like, Hey, what about me? And even though you, and then you don't feel entitled to it. You feel gross. Cause you're like, but they have special needs. And I, you know, so there's all that stuff that comes into it. But I just think the sibling piece is so interesting. It really it's, is. It's like one of those things that's just sort of assumed, right? Like it's assumed that you have siblings and you, and in the loss community, sibling loss is one that really people describe as being very disenfranchised. Like if you lose a child or you lose your partner, sort of that translates to work as, you know, a seismic shift. But if your brother dies, do you really care? Is that, and, and so there's, 
there's that piece of, oh my God, they lose their sibling. They lose her first because she goes to the residential facility and then she dies. And so there's this sort of secondary piece of loss. But I'm so fascinated to hear that that camp, that writing about that camp felt like something maybe that you could have yearned for. Yeah, I I never thought of it that way. That's such an interesting way now to think about it, that I must have on some level. Well, because what's interesting is when I was reading this chapter, and I don't want to get too much into it because I know there are people who haven't read it yet, but you know, there these two girls are in the car with their mom and they do not belong where they're going. So she's taking her disabled daughter to a camp for disabled children, and there are two able-bodied children in the car. And I was like, oh. Jesus, don't take them to this camp. Like, don't do this. I know that's what she's going to do. What I didn't see coming was the clever concept of she is actually the enmeshment between the two of them. She's peeled off and they're brought in in this way that they never could be before. And so the camp really ends up being for them. Like they get space. And I think a lot about, you know, in, in therapy, when we're doing systems, we sort of talk about like parents have to be one system and children have to be one system. But depending on what a marriage looks like or what's going on inside a family, there's all kinds of triangulation or these two siblings, you know, they compete with that sibling. And so I particularly in the way that you see the two older sisters behave later, which I have to tell you, I love, I love that they're kind of like they're shitty children to each other. (laughs) They speak around and they're petty. And I, and I really particularly Joyce has this little mean streak that feels very like age seven or eight to me that I just love her for. Uh, (laughs) I, I, so I love that answer because I think it, I, again, there are just these very deep layers in your characters that feel very true, like very real to me when I think it's because you're calling on your own experience of wanting to understand your parents' experience better, not because you want to be the primary griever, but because when you're excluded from something, you still feel it, right? Right. Right? The energy is still there. You feel the sadness, even if the sadness isn't yours. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit about some of the details? Like there's this scene that takes place at Halloween and there's so many pieces in this that Lydia loves to dress up for Halloween was so fantastic to me. And the fact that you poke fun at Target for the ridiculous prairie dresses that they're still selling is so fantastic. But I wanted to ask about that. Does Halloween have a personal, do you, is it a holiday that you like? Because the, no, you don't care no, about it. I always hated Halloween. And then my sister, like Lydia, I mean, there's just very few similarities, but my sister went to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. And RISD was, you know, it's where the talking heads came from. And it's just one of those schools as I used to visit her. I was like, this is the coolest place on the planet. And it is. Halloween there was like un believable. I mean, if there had been social media back then, but she would tell me, and sometimes I would go and you'd see the costume and they'd build them and they would do this just incredible stuff. So she was always kind of into that. And I've always hated Halloween. I mean, I like the candy, but I just, I don't like to dress up. I'm not, I'm not really fun. I'm not not a costume person either. I've just never been that like fun person, but Lydia in the story just loves Halloween. She loves to dress up. And, and uh, so that's, 
that is what I love about that scene the most I think is that what you can feel is that the sisters have separate experiences with it yeah but then they come together like yeah. they they're they have separate experiences one loves the costumes the other one doesn't there but there is an understanding as they come together in sort of collective but not truly collective hatred of their neighbors right there's a moment which again is sneaky petty very childlike and I'm, I don't want to ruin it so I'm going to leave it but I but I just thought that the that the notion of the way that you wrote it you know so that it's a childhood holiday they're back together and they have this shared desire to participate in Halloween even though it's something that they experience very differently there are just so many moments where you know they you can feel that they are both silos and then there are these little bridges that yeah, come across that's so cool what, the In way you just that. yeah really beautiful ways and again i think i think and i said this to you in my email that is just true of trauma my five brothers and sisters and I have heard every single one of them at different times say, well, I was the one that didn't quite fit in in the family. And I've said multiple times to people, they're like, well, you must have played football on the, you had so many siblings and you had like the only time I ever felt like I had so many siblings was when we were in the car because there were so few yeah. seats, right? Like yeah, we yeah. drove a suburban before they were cool. And when we were at church, there was a very, we filled up a whole pew, wow. which was extraordinary. But otherwise it felt very, I, my memories are that I was by myself as a kid, which is so odd. That is, see, that's so weird, right? isn't it? You probably rarely alone. But that's what, you know, you describe this household that's full of people where a mother who's deeply engaged, particularly with one child and two other daughters who are yeah. deeply alone yeah. in their own experiences and not really able to form a team Yeah, at that time. They don't get to like look out for each other because that also happens, right? There's the trauma right. bonding of like two people grip to each other and and sort of save each other in those moments and this is a, maybe a little bit the, the opposite of that but then they start to do it in their adult life they start right. to come together there are these moments where they can bridge out to each other yeah. and and be there okay i don't want to keep you forever i mean i do want to keep you forever but i want to ask yeah. the poetry and <laughs> and the title and I do, I have to tell you, so I live just outside of DC, right over the line, right near politics and prose. And when I moved here from Adams, Morgan, I joined the community listserv and I, I mean, I won't go into it forever, but I will tell you that the first summer I didn't understand that most of the crazies are on the listserv and that there's normal people out there. Sorry, listserv people who are listening. Um, but there was a whole conversation about like, did the neighbor poison the other neighbor's cats by spraying her bushes for mosquitoes? Probably the, you know, should she sue her for the, and then it branched. I'm not joking, Laura. It branched out into why don't we all get bats? Why doesn't the community? Oh why yeah, for sure. Why don't we tap? And I just, yeah, I was like, I couldn't help myself. I was like, this is a wonderful idea but I have um, some questions. So I'm in here, I'm brand new to the neighborhood. And I'm like, I have some questions. What if your bat that you've been assigned gets rabies and comes onto my property and bites my cat? 
Exactly. I'm just exactly. concerned about the liability and also yeah, what could possibly go wrong. Will we be housing our bats in small homes or do we just let them live in the trees? I mean, so I just when you were writing about it, even before I even yeah. before I read the words, I was so delighted the avocados it's the best but can you talk can you just tell folks sure. a little bit about that so, as a mechanism and so Joyce who you know who lives in Cambridge and uh, whose apartment it is she is obsessed with Nextdoor uh, the Nextdoor app which is called okay. Small World in the book it's called Small World but it's essentially a very much like Nextdoor and she loves to just troll the site she loves to look at all the posts and read them she doesn't like to really engage with people, but she likes to sort of see that little problems get solved. You know, where's the best this and who do I go to for this? And so she loves to read them. And what she does is she turns them into little poems. And I wish I could take total credit for that. But I, of course, some of my best ideas are, are copied from other people. And I gave him credit in the book. But yeah, an old friend of mine who lives in Baltimore, and in fact, he was just cited in the Washington Post as like the poet, the listserv poet laureate of Baltimore. Uh, I should post that article. Actually, I forgot to. But anyway, he is an old childhood friend and he would post on Facebook from his listserv. He would change nothing. He would just take a post and cut it into lines of poetry and just and brilliant. And I remember I contacted him. And I was like, you should do a book of these and you should, this is so brilliant. And he's of course too busy because he has a real job doing, <laughs> he's a professor. And I ended up just being like, oh, I'm gonna use that. And so I did. And what happened was with the first draft of the novel, I had spent many hours, I mean, you write so you know how lovely it is to procrastinate with research. Yeah. And so yeah. when I would be stuck, I would just go on next door and look and look, I had different, I would, you know, lost cats and turkeys and carpenter, you know, all different categories that I would look for, you know, post on. And I would turn them into poems. And I was so proud of myself because I turned in the first draft and my editor read it. And she was like, oh my God, I, and by the way, I love the poems. And I was like, so do I. And I was like, you know what? They're verbatim from next door. They're like, I didn't change a word because yeah. I love the idea that you don't have to change a word. They're actually, that's oh, what it word. is. Yeah. And she sort of was like, oh, you can't do that. Like, <laughs> you can't just copy these. And it didn't occur to me because I, I thought, oh, we could probably put a disclaimer it's at the beginning public. that they're yeah. real. And they were, weren't they, anyway, whatever. I So I, she goes, no, you have to change it. So I would keep maybe one or two lines from the original and then just rewrite them. I had to rewrite them all. But they were so much fun because... Some of them are really funny. I mean, like, you know, the avocados from Whole Foods that were delivered and someone stole them. And then there's like all the lost cats and the bad noisy neighbors. And, and then there's some really poignant ones and people write on these sites, like they're lonely and they end up writing these either very long posts. There's someone in Cambridge that writes some very long posts, like essays. And, and, you know, her husband died, she takes these walks, whatever, they're sort of fascinating. And then other posts that are just, you know, really moving. And so there's one at the very beginning that's like that. So it just was like, I just loved collecting them and, and doing them and then fitting them in different moments that just seemed like the right place to put them. I think one of the things that you do really beautifully in, in all of your books, I mean, I, this it's in separation anxiety, it's an animal husbandry, but the, but it just feels to me like you are an adorer of people. 
Yeah. That that they're that people are not we're not mocking them and we're not making an extreme version of them that that and and maybe the most in this book you give little subtle pieces, like even the annoying neighbors that are upstairs, like you give little human subtlety to them in this way that because there's so much grief in this book, it just, it really deeply touched me because everybody sort of has their own, I don't know, refugee camp experience in their own heart that they're dealing with in all of their own ways, whether it's loneliness or grief or, you know, discontented about your work life or fear that you're going to lose your home or whatever it is, but there, there are little betrayals and little adorations that happen between characters. You do it so beautifully in here. And there are, you know, again, I don't want to give too much from the book, but Joyce's job and what she does and how she does it, that she literally takes pieces of history and puts her own fingerprint on them in a way to sort of take the pain of the past and try to rein in chaos and put some sense of hope and correction, corrective experience and it just really feels feels like what is at the root of all humanity, right? Which is like, we want to be able to go back and fix things yeah. and we want to be as safe as possible. And maybe also she's got this little spin of like being a little petty and being a little perseverating yeah. in her mind and yeah. childlike in that way. But really what she wants is to not have to feel that way. She doesn't want to have to feel that way. She wants yeah. to be able to feel safer. And the world feels safer to her. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, I think the difference between the books I used to write, you know, in my the first part of my career, which was really ended in 2006, I wrote four novels and then stopped for a very long time, had writer's block and all that. But I think the difference really is like, I'm no longer interested in just comic sort of entertaining scenarios. It's much more like if there's going to be the annoying yoga people upstairs, and they're going to be deeply annoying for yeah. sure. But there oh, has so, to be, so why, much. really, why are they there? You know, like, what are they there to either teach them or provide, you know, it sort of sets their own relationship in motion in terms of how they deal with them. But what is the bigger, what is the, what is something? And I find that in later in life, I do feel like I, I go from the two extremes. I'm sure you just like, I hate everyone to oh, like, all the time by people. And I just love, I really love, I always have been so curious about people. I always ask them a million questions. I'm sure you're the same. And I love people's stories. And I find, and I now I have a very much more tender heart toward what I'm writing. I just feel there has to be that real tenderness to it. You can be funny and you can be dark and you can be really petty and shitty and funny and all that, but there has to be a tenderness to it in the end because that's yeah, what I want to read it's all the gray right because yeah. nobody is really yeah. black and white villain and one of the things again that I really love about you know people are going to be very curious and need to go read the details but the shitty neighbors who move in upstairs that really ultimately they become healers for these two sisters that they're that they are yes which I loved because every healing experience in my life anything that has turned out to be for me 
and is going to change the trajectory of me. Most of my experience to begin with is like, fuck no, that sounds terrible. Only idiots <laughs> would do that. Like why? I mean, I remember that the therapy that I love the most, I remember hearing about it in social work school and being like, that sounds like some kind of made up bullshit. And somebody I didn't like in social work school was trained in it. It was like, just absolutely never going to care about that. And now it's the one where I'm like, sorry, it's probably the best model out there. So that's the way, but but I just love that, that the upstairs neighbors really, they play an important role that's healing for these, for these two. I think a lot, like you said, I mean, it really comes to like, are you going to be open to stuff? Yeah. You know, even to the ridiculous or even to things that seem not to be something you'd be open to. And sometimes if you're just porous, if you just let people affect you. I don't mean bad people, but I mean, people, you know, who you might not know, you just, it's like an accident of fate, you know, that you can be changed and moved by, by people you don't expect to be. And I kind of love that feeling. Well, but also the way that you write it for us is not, it's not Oprah. It's not like be open to the spiritual experience of your neighbors. I mean, they're open only because they're willing to like, not say no to having coffee with someone that they're being actively angry and resistant to and in anger, but still, you know, still engaged. So, so I love that because a lot of the questions that I get about grief and loss are sort of like, Megan, what does it mean to hold space? And I'm like, you know, holding space means sitting and not leaving when someone is telling you a hard story and not interjecting and not giving advice. It doesn't mean you like it. It doesn't mean that you are necessarily open-hearted. It doesn't mean that you are judgment-free. It literally means sitting and not doing anything other than being a physical presence. So if we can learn to hold space, a lot of that is learning to control your own reactions, Yes, how uncomfortable you are in the moment. And again, they are, the role of these neighbors is a healing role despite themselves exactly. and everyone else. And exactly. I just think that's very well. Yeah, exactly. The depth of that is so, so really beautifully great. You mentioned, cause I, I gotta let you go, even though I want to talk to you forever. You mentioned that you're writing something else. Can you tell us anything about what you are? Cause the yeah. one thing I now know that I didn't know is that the time between writing and finishing a book and your next book is actually longer. So often authors are talking to us about books that they have moved on from. Are you able to say anything about what you're working on? Oh yeah, on? I just have the beginning, a little beginning chunk. It's taken me, I could be done with the next one, but I, I'm sort of slow after I finish one. It takes me a while to whatever, but it's called Gloom Chaser. Ooh. And it's about a woman who gets divorced and she's in her, you know 50 and her son goes off to college and she moves to the North Shore of Massachusetts to kind of figure out the next six months of her life. And she becomes a driver's ed teacher there and meets the owner of a store called Gloom Chaser, which is like a candle book magic store, magic with a K store. And Gloom Chaser is really funny because the word, I just love the word. What happened was it was about a year ago and the Ukraine war started and I just couldn't watch the news anymore. I just couldn't watch, I just couldn't deal so I ended up do, and I read the news. It's not like I, okay, I do read the news, but I just could, I couldn't, I was so depressed. So I ended up just like going the other direction. And I started to, my son would come home from work and we would watch the Kardashians. We had never watched the Kardashians ever. We had missed that whole thing. And, but he was a Kanye West 
before Kanye became a Nazi. He was very into his music and his art and everything. So we watched a lot of the episodes of Kanye. Anyway, we could only watch a few seasons and it was disgusting when we stopped. But it's hard. I got sort of obsessed with that whole thing because I get obsessed with things. And I downloaded the free sample of Kris Jenner's memoir. And I read, I read it. It's like the first chapter. And it, it, she grew up in La Jolla, California. And this is the thing. In the first few pages, she says she grew up in La Jolla, California. Her grandparents owned a candle store. And she said, you know, it was this wonderful place. And they had religious candles and tower candles. But her favorite candles of all were the gloom chasers. And I saw that word and I was like, oh my God, I love that word. What does that mean? And a gloom chaser is, first of all, it's a drink. But in candle form, it is a stained glass votive and you put the candle in and it when you light it it, the color chases the gloom away but it's also like a storm chaser like maybe the character i'm writing about is a gloom chaser she chases like chases after the gloom but so i just love that word and i that's sometimes how some an idea will come and it will fit onto something i was already kind of thinking about and suddenly it's like you're merging it's like a blender now i just put all this weird shit in the blender i don't exactly know how it's all going to work like with small world it was like well there's poetry and there's disability story and then there's the neighbors and then there's the and then in separation anxiety it was like okay well there's the dog and then there's the marriage that's falling apart and then there's this friend who's dying like you put it in and you're like i i don't know and you press and somehow it kind of comes together in a really weird magical way that you never think is going to happen i mean i'm always when i'm writing a book i'm i feel like i I, like with Small World, I was like, okay, I got the plane in the air. And I used to ask my friend, my really good friend, Ann Leary, who's a writer who everyone knows because she wrote The Good House and The Foundling and other things. And I was like, I feel like the planes, I don't know how to land the plane. Like I got everything up there and all these things are in the thing, but I, how is it going to, I didn't know anything about how this book was going to end or come together. And it, and it does. I mean, you're writing a novel, right? So you'll. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that makes so much sense to me and I never did before. I, yeah. I love, I love talking technique with people mostly not because I want them to teach me what their technique is, but just because I love hearing, you know, yeah. there are people who they write 20, you know, 2000 words a day and they do it in the morning and then they, and they knew exactly what was going to happen. And they, and then there are other people that are like, I got to page 73 and realized this character was going to die. And then I had to cry for five days. And I, I think my process has been similar to yours in that, like, I, I just wrote through a piece where it was very important that a character have, have someone have died in a certain way. And I thought it was this, you know, I thought it was a female character. And all of a sudden I was writing, I was like, oh my God, no, it's going to be him. And it's going to be his dad. And that's going to be the thing. And gave me chills. I think art is amazing in that way that we're sort of like the vessels, the, yeah, the pilots to some ideas. And then, you know, it, and then it's a circular gift where it comes back and says like, well, I'm doing this coaching stuff. I mean, I'm not trained like you, I don't have any degrees. I like to pretend I'm a therapist, but I'm not, but I'm doing this writing therapy for people. And because I have a background in publishing and then writing and then ghostwriting, I feel uniquely qualified in my yeah, own mind. That's right. You're the expert. With their writing. And it's not, I don't want to read it necessarily. It's not about like, is it good? It's really about like getting awesome. people to be able to write and get out of their own way because there's so much emotion there's so much psychology involved in just in, in the process that 
you know, you judge yourself or you this or you that, you know, or you blocked or you, you hate everything, you know, and so it's so satisfying because everyone has like a whole different issue with their writing. And it's really fascinating. The, The class that I'm teaching is, is because when I was writing my memoir, I couldn't write because I couldn't really remember safely. And by safely, I mean, if I went back to the memories, I started to get destabilized. I started to get, have nightmares. Like the PTSD wasn't totally, and God love the Zibby books team because they really understood it, but they were like, Megan, what, how did you get physically from Cape Cod back to DC? And I was like, I can't write that chapter. And what I learned was a whole bunch of visualization exercises using IFS therapy, which you might know where, you know, you imagine that your critic is a person that, you know, and you ask it to go to the back of the bus. And because all this stuff happens in the brain, which is like, when you are activated in a state of fear, your, your creativity literally doesn't get the right oxygen or energy. And so the course that I teach is about just taking people's bodies as much to a state of neutral and writing just as much as they can from memory before yeah. they get exactly. to a fiber. So it's, you know, a little bit like a seesaw and, and I, mm-hmm. the neuroscience behind it really fascinates me, but it also, it's exactly like, I don't need to read their writing. I, my job is to help them stay safe inside their bodies and yeah. their memories so that yeah. they can do what we know is amazing, which is use words to help you hold your own narrative so that you know your own story and it isn't destabilizing. I mean, I was thinking when you were talking about your dad, that there are, we think that talking about your feelings is the way to get your feelings out, mm-hmm. but it, but there are just as many people that re-traumatize themselves oh by talking God, about their feelings. Yeah. And so it just sounds like your dad needed to talk about it, but it went in a circle instead of a compulsive. Long. It was like just a compulsion. Yeah. And it never, you were exactly right. It never went anywhere. And if that's such an interesting way to think about it. Like he probably re-traumatized himself every single time. Well, that's in trauma work. That's what we're so careful to only do as much as you can, because you will, you'll take yourself into the five senses experience and re-experience the sense of destabilization instead of feel the thing with the imagination and feeling more resourced. It's, it sounds like, Sounds like you are doing the thing maybe without the like explanation of the neuroscience behind it. Yeah. But and it's people who are not as like, traumatized. They're more trouble traumatized by publishing. Publishing. They had a yeah. bad publishing experience. Not the kind of trauma you're talking about. It's more, let me bring you down from like the horrible agent you right. had, you know, tell me what happened or your editor was this, or, you know, you submitted to 30 places and you got a 30 nose. Like that's the trauma I, I'm that's talking about. That's real trauma though. That, that is. Just- the art, right? It, ta- it, it makes is. you want to take risks. I and am really, I've kept that. you on for so long. I hope I didn't screw up the rest of your schedule. No, great. I'm so glad we met in DC. I can't wait for your next book that, you know, every, every one of them, I'm like, oh, but, but truly I, this would be a, a small world is like on the tippy top of my list of, of the you. last, you know, year. I just, thank you. Um, so much. Thank you. It's just really magic. I mean, it's a thank really you. magic, subtle story that I think people probably could, if they didn't have childhood trauma, could read it and really love the story because the story yeah. is there, but it's like C.S. Lewis in some ways where like, yeah. And it's not just a cute story about sisters who bicker. It also has this depth to it for those of us that are yearning for that kind of story. And it's just gorgeous. It's just really great. Yeah. And just 
Thank you so much for Thank your you. time today and for the books and all the writing and keep writing and all the things. Oh, thank really, you. Really thank you for coming to Politics and Prose and connecting the dots from Animal Husbandry to this. It's very special. Very it special. is. I mean, for me, it really is. This is yeah. such a gift. Hi, everybody. You know that I can barely handle it. Thanks, Laura. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye.